Uh, this evening we have uh, another gentleman from Hillsdale uh, College. Hillsdale seems to find its way to Sacred Heart quite often. Um, he's a colleague of Dr. David Whalen, who has uh, been here a number of times and given uh, sensational lectures here at Sacred Heart for the Authenticum series. Uh, Dr. Bradley Berzer uh, earned his Bachelor of Arts at the University of Notre Dame and his PhD in history at Indiana University. He is the chair of history at Hillsdale College and the co-founder of and senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative and fellow of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. I pulled this quote from Hillsdale website and this is Dr. a quote of, by Dr. Berzer. I believe that the purpose of higher education is to introduce every generation to the greats of the Western tradition and to remind them what it means to be human. To accomplish this goal effectively, every professor needs two things, enthusiasm and continuous learning. I think he's going to get along well here. Our job is never to make false idols for our students, but to find the excellences within each one, to encourage the honing of unique gifts, and to inspire the rising generations to love through charity. When he's not teaching, he spends his time reading and writing, hiking, cooking, baking, and playing with his kids. His lecture tonight is titled Ecce Homo, Catholic Humanism in the Thought of Cather, Dawson, and Kirk. And let's give a nice, warm, authentic welcome to Dr. Bradley Berzer. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you, Mike. That was incredibly nice. Uh, I had actually forgotten about that quote on the Hillsdale website, so I'm glad to be reminded of that. Now, <laughs> try and remind myself when I teach that those things really matter. So anyway, thank you very much. I'm glad you're all here tonight. My, my spring break starts tomorrow. So this is right at the end of the first half of the semester, and my spring break will be spent in Hillsdale. And uh, it's, uh, as you can tell, it's kind of like, for those of you who are my age, you may remember MTV spring break. It's like that at Hillsdale. You know, very wild, very warm, lots of sun. It'll be uh, very interesting. So anyway, I'm very glad to spend the night, the evening, before my spring break starts with you. And again, thank you so much, everybody at Sacred Heart and everybody in Grand Rapids for having me here. Uh, I have a couple of people out that I'd like to at least uh, notice. I've got a former research assistant and former student, Laurel Champ Good over there with her youngest and her husband there. And next to them is my wife, Deidre, who drove over with me today. And uh, she's got a, a really important birthday coming up in two weeks. <laughs> So it's a, it ends in a, in a zero. It's a, it's a big one. So great stuff. And anyway, so again, thank you all for having us. And uh, this is going to be great. So I'm very much looking forward to it. So tonight, I have been asked to speak on the nature of Christian humanism and what Christian humanism is. And when Mike and I were talking about what it is that I might speak on and what, how we might approach this topic, I gave a couple of names. Uh, in particular, Russell Kirk, someone that I admire deeply. We have 
Mrs. Kirk here, his widow, uh, very wonderful woman if you haven't had a chance to meet Annette Kirk, a force of nature in almost every way. You'll see that even if you only talk to her for a minute or two. Uh, and, and she's very, very good conversationalist, as you'll see. I also wanted to talk a little bit about Christopher Dawson, another figure that I'm very, very taken with and I think is an important figure that we've generally forgotten from the 20th century, but I think shouldn't be. But there's someone else I want to bring in, too, and not just because we're in the upper Midwest, but I'd like to bring in someone from Nebraska, and that is Willa Cather, a person that I think is an extraordinary figure and really has not been given her due in all kinds of ways. Uh, She has often been relegated, first of all, because she was a conservative in her own day and age. She was really run out of literary circles by the late 1920s. And even though she still kept earning prizes, those prizes came mostly because of her popularity with readers, but certainly not with literary critics who really ran her out of the literary movement by about 1930, about 1935. She, of course, passes away not long after that in the 1940s, and we won't see a revival of her until we see the regionalist revival of literature in the 1970s. And there are a lot of people who spent a lot of time in the trenches trying to promote people like Willa Cather for a very long time and keeping her memory alive. Finally, I think Nebraska has caught on and realized what a treasure they have in her. There's still one other person in Nebraska they haven't caught on to yet, Mari Sandoz, and uh, I very much hope that she will be the next figure after Willa Cather has been explored, because I think Sandoz is worthy as well, uh, not just as a great woman writer in America, but truly a great writer without any kinds of distinctions at all, any kind of uh, descriptions before that. She's just an amazing writer. Uh, I would highly recommend, if any of you ever get the chance, to read her biography of Crazy Horse, uh, the great Sioux warrior. Uh, Just uh, an astounding look at this figure and really does get into the heart of what he was trying to do and how he was defending hearth and home in the 1870s. So to start off tonight, I wanted to think about this title, and the title was not mine originally. I have to give Mike all the credit in the world for the title itself, especially the Ecce Homo. And thinking about what that means, especially as we're in now Lent and the idea of Pontius Pilate revealing Christ in a very mocking way, here behold the man, this idea of the Ecce Homo, I have to admit that that was not my first thought when I heard that title. I did not think of scripture right away. For better or worse, I thought of the autobiography of Friedrich Nietzsche. And he named his last book, Ecce Homo, in particular because he was mocking Christianity and he was mocking the idea of the confessions. Now, I don't want to just belittle Nietzsche. I think there are some things about him that we need to take very seriously in this world. In fact, when I look back at some of our recent Supreme Court decisions, especially if we go back to uh, the Lawrence decision in the 1990s and the idea that we can get rid of all tradition and simply define the universe in any way we want, it's amazing how much that sounds almost exactly what like what Nietzsche was saying we should do in 1886. And I think about the 19th century, and as an Americanist, I study mostly my area of of expertise, such that it is, is mostly the American Revolution through the American Civil War. But I'm also very interested in the thought processes that continue after the American Civil War. So when I look to the 19th century, we don't see a Jefferson, we don't see an Edmund Burke. When we think about the great figures of the 19th century, at least those will have a lasting impact. We think of people like 
Charles Darwin, we think of Karl Marx, we think of Sigmund Freud, and all of those people are very interesting, but what they have in common that they don't have in common with Nietzsche is that they're all materialists. And one of the, thing that, one of the things that Nietzsche understood, I think probably better than any one of his generation, was that when we move into the 20th century and then beyond, we will not be stuck in materialism. Materialism may be everywhere, but it will take on a religious significance of its own. It will become a religion in some way. And that was something that the other great thinkers of that era did not understand. But Nietzsche grasped this. He knew that there would have to be some kind of struggle of the spirit. Now, I think he took things in a very, very bad direction. And I don't think that it's at all coincidental that when Hitler and his new wife commit suicide in the bunker, that they are listening to a Wagnerian opera based on Nietzsche's work. That, again, we can't blame Nietzsche for Hitler, but we can certainly see that that kind of influence was very direct, and there's no doubt that Nietzsche had spread all kinds of disaster everywhere. So I'm going to just read to you two quotes from Nietzsche, and this is his last work, so 1886, Ecce Homo, again, being very intentionally blasphemous. Uh, If you know much about Nietzsche, at age 12, he made a very conscious decision to reject everything his father had taught him. His father was a very devout Lutheran pastor. So Nietzsche, at the age of 12, rejected all of that and wanted to take that kind of religious fervor into a very different direction. Still spiritual, but definitely not in any way orthodox Uh, in terms of its Christianity. So when we read his autobiography, the last thing he writes, it's very hard to know if we're supposed to take him seriously because he was an extremely intelligent and very funny person, or if this is supposed to be ironic. And it's probably a bit of both, but it's hard to tell. And I'll just, I'll read this to you and you'll get a sense yourself of exactly how Nietzsche thought of himself. By the way, one of the reasons this is the last thing he writes is because by the following year, he has to be committed. He's so crazy that uh, he never produces another thing, and it is quite possible that as he's writing this, he's already descending into madness. Within my writings, my one book on Zarathustra stands by itself. With this book I have written, I have given mankind the greatest gift that has ever been given. You imagine that for a moment? His book, greatest thing that's ever been given to humanity. With a voice that speaks across millennia, it is not only the most exalted book that exists, the actual book is the heir of the heights, the entire fact that man himself lies at a tremendous distance beneath my ideas. Not very politically correct, I'll give him credit for that. Right? We're not going to see him debating on the House floor with language like this or ideas like this. Certainly does not believe in equality. It is also the profoundest book written, born out of an innermost abundance of truth, an inexhaustible well into which no bucket could ever descend without coming up filled with gold and goodness. There are days I would like to have that kind of confidence. (laughs) There's no doubt. And frankly, when I think back to seventh grade, I really could have used that in all kinds of ways. But I was not blessed with such confidence. So let me jump to the end of this. And this is what I think is crucial in how Nietzsche sees himself. He says, I must understand, and you must understand, that in my writing, I am a man of fatality. 
For when truth steps into battle with the lie of millennia, we will have convulsions, an earthquake, a spasm, a transposition of valley and mountain such as never been dreamed of in human history. For the concept of politics will become completely absorbed into the concept of war. And we will see in the 20th century a war of the spirits. All the power structures of the old society will be blown into the air. They, one and all, reposed on that lie. And there will be wars such as there have never been seen before on earth. And this will all happen after I have written, for I am the destroyer, I am the disruptor. Now, again, there's a little bit of hubris there. But I also want to note that Nietzsche, when he writes this in 1886, is writing almost alone in describing the horrors of the 20th century and knowing what's coming. Because if you were any sane person in 1886 or 1890 or 1900, you would never dream that a World War I was coming. You would never dream that the Soviet Union was coming or that Nazi Germany was coming. This was a time in the 1880s and 1890s of relative peace and prosperity and almost unrelenting visions of prosperity in the future. Everything was progressive, everything. And that progress was always towards something better. So when you see someone like Friedrich Nietzsche, and he's not alone, but he's close to it, saying that this new century is going to see the tearing down of everything that's come before and now a building upon something new, he's correct. And in so many ways, whether we want him to be or not, he is a prophet. He sees very clearly what's going to happen. Now, it may be a catch-22. Is he the reason Hitler arises, or does Hitler arise, and so forth? We can ask this, which comes first, right? We know chronologically which comes first, but what one thing causes another. Regardless, if we want to look back at the 20th century, if we look at figures like Stalin, figures like Hitler, we think about someone like the Pol Pot in Cambodia, they all resemble much more Friedrich Nietzsche in their attitudes than they do even Karl Marx, even those who are professed Marxists. So Nietzsche got something right, and I think the reason he did was the very simple reason that he understand that there were spiritual things. Now, his spiritual should not be our spiritual in any way, shape, or form, but he recognizes that power, and I think we have to recognize that as well. So to follow that up, I want to think about these three figures, Christopher Dawson, Russell Kirk, and Willa Cather, and why are they important, and what is it about them that helps answer these kinds of attacks that Nietzsche is giving in the late 19th century? When we see in the 20th century the arising of a number of different figures, so most prominently in our era and from this region, certainly Russell Kirk, without question, is the most important figure in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, really until his death in 1994, and then beyond that. But if we look across the ocean at the time right before Russell Kirk arises here, but also in Britain, we see figures like Christopher Dawson, T.S. Eliot, a number of people, Jacques Maritain, Etienne Gilson, a number of these figures that are all trying to answer ideology, not with a counter ideology, but with some kind of truth. So people like Maritain, Dawson, Kirk understood that as human beings, something I think Nietzsche understood as well, 
We have to believe in something. And if we don't believe in what's true, we'll accept what is told to us is true because it's the next best thing. And that can be very disastrous. But if you think about scripture, remember what Jesus said as well. He would much prefer to speak to someone who is evil than is someone who is lukewarm. The lukewarm, he has no time for at all. And I think that's important when we figure out who and what we are, and that is, what do we stand for? So someone like Dr. Kirk was not in any way content to simply say he was against communism or he was against fascism. He had to be in favor of something. And we see that as a consistent theme in a number of different thinkers. The label we typically give to these people, all of them, male, female, mostly Catholic, but quite a few Anglicans, a few Lutherans uh, thrown in as well, and a couple of Dutch Reformed too. But certainly we call these people Christian humanists overall. And that label itself, I think, is a critical label, not just for us today in 2019, but I think as any time we're talking about humanity itself, it's a critical label to understand who and what we are and what it is that we stand for. So the Christian humanists overall in the 20th century, I don't want to give the impression they formed a club, that they had some kind of organization in which they were promoting all of their ideas. They used a variety of different magazines, newspapers, conferences, whatever they could do, they were promoting their ideas, but they quite often didn't like each other. So Maritan, for example, was infamous for not getting along with a number of other people who thought like him. And that was not true with someone like Dr. Kirk, who got along with most people very well, but there's no doubt that someone like Christopher Dawson really angered a lot of people in the 20th century as well. People either kind of loved him or hated him. So again, I don't want to suggest that they had some kind of ideological club, but there's no doubt that in hindsight from 2019, we can look back and we can see a number of these figures who were really trying to fight for the same thing. That is, they were fighting for a positive definition of humanity as opposed to some kind of set of ideas uh, that we would see in something like fascism or communism. So when we think of Christian humanism, if you want to think about it scripturally, probably the best place to go would be Paul when he goes to Athens and he begins to debate with the Stoics and the Epicureans. And he notices He doesn't say that everything in Stoicism is false or that everything in Epicureanism is false, but he points to the statue of the unknown God. And he says, even you have recognized in your wisdom that you don't know all things. This matters, right? This is the unknown God. And that, at that moment, in many ways, when Paul himself, who is almost certainly an educated Jewish, Greek, Roman citizen, that when Paul himself goes to Athens, he's engaging the pagans not only as a Christian, but he's doing so as a humanist as well. That is, he understands the humanist tradition of Greece and of Rome. He understands, if we want to put it simply, he understands the Socratic ethic. He understands Socrates and Socrates' admonition that we can never do ill on our route to good. The moment we do something wrong, even in the name of good, we've already corrupted the good. This was Socrates in his final days as he was speaking with Crito. We must never in any way do anything harmful because if we do, we've tainted everything. So if we take that idea of the Socratic ethic, we can also then combine it with the Pauline notions, with St. Paul's notions of order 
and morality. So Christian humanism is really an understanding not only of the liberal arts from the Greek and the Roman tradition, but also the Judeo-Christian morality and ethic from that tradition as well. So we bring those things together. We bridge them. And people like C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, these people, along with the ones that I've mentioned already tonight, are all promoting this idea of a Christian humanism. So I'd like to put this in two other ways as we start thinking about how we might put that into action, especially with these figures that I've mentioned. So two things I'd like to bring up, and both very Greek, but also baptized then later by Christianity. So one of the arguments that the early Greek philosophers made was that for us to understand something, we would have to be able to blend two different concepts. We would have to be able to blend the concept of a universal idea this idea of what they would have called logos coming from Heraclitus, this imagination, this artistic fire, we would have to combine that with the Platonic notion of mythos, with story. And so it's not enough simply to have the word, but we have to have the word in context of time and history as well. So as Christian humanists, these people did not think of history as divided between the pagan era and the Christian era and the post-Christian era, or as the era of God the Father and then God the Son and then God the Holy Spirit, but instead they saw continuity. History was of a whole. God is in eternity. He looks into time. When God comes into time through the incarnation, he comes in the fullness of time at a specific moment, but because he is the word in the beginning of all things, he does not sanctify merely those who would come chronologically after his life. He sanctifies the world. It goes both directions. It's not merely progressive, and it's not regressive, but it is time. So it goes from Christ in the incarnation, not merely to us in the future, but it goes back to Moses. It is redeeming at many, many levels. And we see that, of course, in Peter's uh, epistles, where Jesus goes to the prison and he preaches to those who are waiting. So this element of grace is not unidirectional. It goes in all ways. So this is what's really important. The Christian humanists are not concerned with dividing. They're concerned with unifying. They want to find those things that matter at all times, in all places, for all people. So whether we're black, white, male, female, Gentile, Jew, it applies to everybody. The same laws in Grand Rapids as in the 5th century B.C. Athens. Right? It does not matter. We are human the same morality, the same ethics. So rather than dividing everything, they're always trying to unify those things. So just imagine what this might be. We often in the modern era, and we've done this for the last 200 plus years, we always think in terms of left, right. We do that all the time. We do that in Congress. We do it on CNN. It is everywhere. We try and have this spectrum of left, right. Dr. Kirk, people like Christopher Dawson, they adamantly rejected the left-right spectrum. If you go back and read Dr. Kirk's writings, never, ever does he use the term right-wing. He is conservative, meaning he is conserving the dignity of the human person. He is not right-wing. And Dawson said the same thing. The moment we think in terms of left-right, we're allowing all enemies to win 
because we're dividing the human person against the human person. The struggle is not left-right. It is man, anti-man. It is Christ, anti-Christ. It is a struggle that is not vertical, excuse me, not horizontal, but vertical. And the cross, of course, is the perfect place where we see the horizon meet with that which is vertical. So the relationship, again, is not divided but it's unified in some way. So that means that the things of this earth are not poison, though there could be poison, they could be misused, but in the same way that we have an eternal ethic, we also have an eternal duty given to Adam that we must be stewards of the earth because in the same way that we are our brother's keeper, we must also keep the things of creation in a proper order. So I will paraphrase here, and I was amazed actually looking this up online, how many different variations. So if I'm not quite getting the version that you use here at Sacred Heart exactly right, please forgive me, but hopefully you'll, you'll work with me on this. And this is in the preparation of the Mass. And if you can think about how the priest is preparing, and I realize some priests say this out loud, some say it very quietly, but the words themselves, now, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through the gift of nature and the work of human hands, we have this bread to offer. It will become, through your grace, the bread of life. I realize that's not quite the version you've probably heard, but understand what this means. The things of the world are not evil. They are meant to be used as a gift. They are to be recreated with human hands, but it is not our will that makes them good. We use the gifts God has given us But then, once that is done, God blesses it. And ultimately, it is God's. It is not ours. So the things of this earth, whatever we're talking about, our morality, our ethics, the very soil itself, these things are goods that are not meant to be divided, them, us, this part, this part. But instead, they form this whole continuity. So just as the human person is related to all other human persons, so creation itself is a gift to all who will ever live, whether we use it properly or not. So that's part of what I want to get into, especially as we think about Cather in a moment. But so how do we understand all of this? And this is where I'm very taken with Christopher Dawson and with Russell Kirk. How do we understand these things here and now in 2019? How do we make these real? It's one thing to celebrate them on a Sunday or to have the priest do it. But how do we, those of us who are not religious in the sense of being permanently religious, those of us who are secular or lay, what do we do in society? How do we live this out? How do we understand the human person? How do we understand creation? Christopher Dawson one of the great Christian humanists of the last century, Uh, a man born into a Welsh family, an Anglo-Welsh family, uh, very fascinating figure in all kinds of ways, born in 1889, passes away in 1970. Uh, Most of us have forgotten him, but I guarantee you, for those of you who are my age, uh, your parents and your grandparents almost certainly would have had Dawson's books on the shelves during the 1950s and 60s. It would have been a very unusual Catholic home not to have had at least one book and probably more by Christopher Dawson, not only in England, but especially here in America, where he was extremely popular. But Dawson was this great figure in all kinds of ways. But for us tonight, I just want to talk a little bit about what he understood 
as our place in history and how we understand ourselves vis-a-vis history, those who have come before us and those who have come after. He said, and I think this is brilliant, that if we want to understand not just the principle of the Logos, but also the mythos, the story, it is critically important that all of us embrace from the earliest age possible the concept of imagination, the ability to see beyond our physical senses, the ability to think beyond what our rational mind understands. So things we should never take for granted, a really good meal, a really good conversation, a beautifully blossoming tree, whatever it may be, we find goodness in all kinds of things, Dawson said, and it is up to us to try and take this into our very being to understand that we're getting some kind of glimpse into eternity itself, that these things of beauty, whatever they may be, the birth of a child, a baptism, things that you understand at the moment, this matters, this is significant. These are things, Dawson said, we have to carry with us. And we relate them best, as Dawson says, through stories, not only for children, but especially in mythologies. Not just mythos, but actual mythologies. So that when we hear the story, when we understand Prometheus, when we understand Baldur, when we understand Odin, whatever this myth might be, we recognize within that myth not necessarily fact, but truth. We see within it a glimpse of something that is greater than what we understand. And the myth itself becomes a carrier of truth just as each one of us is not the word, but we are made in the image of the word. So just as each person reflects the divine will and the divine face of God, so stories properly understood tell us the true story as well. And of course, the only true story that matters for us as as Christians is the story of Christ's birth, his death, and his resurrection. That is the ultimate myth in the sense that it is this very high thing, the highest thing, but it's not something that we can understand purely through scientific explanation. It's not something we can verify, corroborate, or replicate in a scientific way, but we believe it as the absolute truth. Think about what I had read just a moment ago in the idea of preparation for the Mass. The priest does not re-consecrate the host. He enters into a timeless moment with all communions ever, from the first communion until the last communion ever said. And it doesn't matter if it's being said in Latin America or Saudi Arabia. It does not matter. It doesn't matter if it's 100 years from now or 1,000 years ago. They are all one. That is myth, tying all of this together, not factually, but truly. So in that sense, we grasp these very high ideals through what this is. So Dawson tells us, he says, I believe very importantly that our old myths are better not only intrinsically, but because they lead further back and open a door into the mind as well as into the past. This was the old road which carries us back not merely for centuries, but for thousands of years. It is the road by which every people has traveled and from which the very beginnings of all of our human literature have come. Those are the deepest sources. And imagine... and. 
again, I'm probably speaking more to my generation and those older than me than I am to the younger generation here, but for those of us who grew up on the Leatherstocking Tales, if you've read The Last of the Mohicans, if you've read Natty Bumpo, Natty Bumpo is nothing but a brilliant rewrite of the Aeneid. It is a retelling of the story of Aeneas and his conquering of Rome simply put in the Catskills. And yet it means so much to us as an American people because we understand the specifics. It's not the Trojans taking on the Latins. It's the Europeans encountering the American Indians. It's the same story. And this is what Dawson is getting at. We repeat these stories. We tell them in different fashion. And I know for those of you who are younger than I am, Almost every one of you have grown up on Lewis and Tolkien and Rowling. And the reason you're so taken with them is not just because they're great stories. They're great stories that tell us true things. There are no hobbits running around. There are no elves running around. And yet the story of Frodo is the story of Christ. The story of Sam is the story of St. John. We recognize that over and over again. And it doesn't have to be directly allegorical. This happens at a multitude of levels. Gandalf, for example, is not merely the archangel Michael. He is also Odin. And he is weirdly Tolkienian in some bizarre way. It's not one thing versus another. It's many, many, many many things at a variety of different levels in the same way that when we take communion, it is not just the bread, it is also the body. And when we meet somebody, it's not just meeting that person, it's meeting the image of Christ in that person. That's what matters, that we see beyond these mere facts. So the idea that we tell these stories is critical. And so I'll turn from our great Anglo-Welsh scholar, Christopher Dawson, to our local person, Russell Kirk, coming out of Plymouth, Michigan, and then Macosta, Michigan. And Kirk writes beautifully about the idea of specifically what a mythology is. What do we mean when we're talking about myth? What is the particular element of a myth, and how do we understand it when we see it? Kirk wrote in the late 1960s, when we seek for truths in history, We must not just indulge in our dreamy visions of unborn ages. And we must not just predict the inevitability of some domination. Rather, all of the truths of history, the real meanings of history, are to be discovered in what history can teach us about the framework of the only thing that ultimately matters, Kirk says, the Logos. This is the central point of our history. When we judge somebody, when we write a biography of Russell Kirk, we do look at Russell Kirk as how he interacted with those around him. But we also have to judge him by how he behaved according to eternal ethics, according to his maker. How do we understand him? How do we know who he was? We have to be able to get into the very soul and understand specifically how does that person see outside of himself. So it's the Logos, Kirk says, This is the significance of human existence, and in it we see the splendor and the misery of our human condition. In this inquiry, we must join historical disciplines with insights that can be both philosophical as well as psychological. And then, about 10 years later, Dr. Kirk gave a speech over in Hillsdale in which he described exactly what he meant by the faculty of imagination. So just think about scripture for a moment 
Think about John, St. John. What is the Logos? John 1.9. It is the light that enlightens every man. Right there. What is the Logos? It is the light that enlightens every man. The word. And notice, again, John does not say every man who will come from this point forward. He says every man. It is not one direction. It is throughout human existence. How do we understand this? And this faculty, that is, the image, the logos, is the representation of God or the divine reflecting in our very souls. So Kirk writes, he says in his speech in 1978 at Hillsdale, images are always representations of mystery, necessarily, for mere words are tools that break in the hand And it has not pleased God that man should be saved by logic or abstract reason alone. Reason is a gift. It is a beautiful gift, but it has to be balanced with faith. It cannot be a tool on its own. It is a part of something larger than anything that it in and of itself can understand. It must be greater than that. And this is that image, that idea of who and what we are as reflecting the divine. So Kirk continues... This image, I repeat, can raise us on high, as did Dante's high dream, but it can also draw us down into the abyss. It is imagery, rather than some narrowly deductive and inductive process, which gives us great poetry as well as scientific insights. And I can give you the most basic argument possible about this. As Deidre and I were driving in, coming up from Kalamazoo on 131, I cannot tell you how many billboards we saw advertising the Gerald Ford International Airport. And of course, what's interesting is everything was to get you to go elsewhere, right? It's like, look at the palm trees in Florida. We have a direct flight to somewhere or to Nashville or to Las Vegas. In fact, Deidre and I thought, well, hey, we've got a wedding anniversary come up. We'll just come over to the Ford and take off to Las Vegas. But there it was, right? These advertisements of everything that you can do. Now, we get on an airplane. There's nothing mysterious about the working of an airplane. The logic that allows the airplane to fly existed at the moment Adam and Eve left Eden. But nobody had the technology or the understanding of how to make it. The principles were all the same. When we fly on an airplane, we are working with nature, not dominating it. And this is what Kirk is saying. It's not just in great poetry that we see the image of the divine. It's even in the most basic technological things that we see around us. Because they would not function did they not follow eternal rules. They're different rules than rules of morality, but they are still rules that are applicable in all times and all places, at least on this side of existence. So I'll finish this aspect, not with Kirk, but with J.R.R. Tolkien. And I think Tolkien gets this beautifully. If we want to understand everyone, Tolkien said, we must understand that each person is an allegory. Each person embodies in a particular tale and is clothed in the garments of time and place, that which is everlasting and universal. Each and every person, even the most degraded person you can think of, even the person has blown everything in their life and every chance, still exists only by the grace of God, and therefore is still a reflection of the divine, even in all of that armor that is just corrupt in every way. 
even our worst enemy, is still alive by the grace of God. And that is a critical thing for us to understand, especially in our very divided world. So the last thing I want to talk about then is Willa Cather. And I'll bring this all to a kind of conclusion and summation here. Cather was not a Catholic. She was an Anglo-Catholic, but not a Roman Catholic. She was raised as a Baptist and became a rather devout member of the Church of England sometime in her adulthood, along with her parents. But she came to understand, and going through her letters are just amazing, she came to understand that for any artist to get the fullness of the art, the only way they will be able to do this is by understanding the Roman Catholic Church. This was her argument. And uh, Ralph McInerney, one of the greatest men I've ever had the privilege of meeting, passed away about 10 years ago, philosopher at Notre Dame, a medievalist, as he wrote in one of his last books, you know, with Cather, we should never, ever dismiss her as not being Catholic. She is probably the most Catholic of all writers in American history. And I think McInerney is absolutely right about that. If we dismiss her simply because she never crossed the Tiber, we're going to miss so many things about her. And I would mention just three of her books that I think are essential to understanding our faith and how she presents her own vision of Christian humanism. The best book that she writes in terms of understanding who we are as a person is a book that almost everyone's forgotten called The Professor's House. This is a book that delves deeply into the life of a soul and a mind of a scholar and a writer, of someone who comes to the end of his career and then must judge what did he do, the person's name is St. Peter in the book, what did he do or not that lived up to the gifts that God had given him. And his only student that he really cared about was killed in World War I. So he has no legacy, nothing to carry on his own tradition, and he has to judge himself. And the house, of course, is meant to be a symbol of the soul. Right? The idea of what faculty do we understand? Do we understand the higher faculty of rationality or that of imagination or that of passion? And he goes through this, and there's a, a beautiful German maid who is a devout Catholic. St. Peter, Godfrey St. Peter, is no longer Catholic, but his maid is. And she simply goes around and she gives us scripture in her song because she's very happy. And St. Peter is glum. He's a scholar. And he's been thinking about the deepest things all of his life and missing the beauty around him. And his maid understands all of this. And it's this incredible conversation between this maid who is illiterate but knows her faith and this extremely scholarly man who has won every prize possible in the history profession. But the second book I would recommend from Cather is her book about an 11-year-old French girl growing up in Quebec called Shadows on the Rock. Uh, another book that gets so intimately and deeply into the psyche of the human person and recognizes what it means to grow. What is faith? How do we treat those around us? Where do we see in the church beauty as opposed to corruption? And yes, there is corruption, and yes, we must challenge it, but we challenge it through truth and beauty, not just by denigrating the corruption, but by overcoming it with something better. So yes, we must take it down, but we must also replace it with something something that is greater than what it was. It's easy for any of us to destroy. It's so easy. But to find the beauty and to create is something much more difficult. But the book I want to talk about to conclude this talk is what I consider to be the American novel. And I realize if we had 
hundred or a thousand American lit professors in here, I would guess that not one of them would agree with me on this. But for me, this is a book I try to read every year. I find it so perceptive at every level. The only thing for me that comes close to it is The Lord of the Rings. Uh, But this book is Death Comes for the Archbishop. And this telling of the second bishop in what is the 48 United States, uh, the continental United States, going out to the southwest, Bishop LeMay, and in the book, Latour, this argument about who this person is and what this person can do, not only to integrate his own belief with that of the native peoples, but again, to bring a certain kind of beauty that had always been there but had never been seen. This is the job of Latour, of our main character. And he has a very, very trusty sidekick by the name of Brother Joseph, Father Joseph, who is, you'll find out, and I don't want to give anything away if you've not read it, but you realize at the end of the novel, he's a much more important figure than you ever gave him credit for, but you don't get that until about the third to the last sentence. And at that point, you're probably exhausted, you could miss it. But if you read that book, make sure you carefully read the last page because the entire novel is turned on its head at that point, but I won't tell you exactly how. So when Cather begins this book, it's set in the 1840s. And for those of you who know your history of the Vatican, in 1848, the Vatican was overthrown by liberal rebellion, a liberal rebellion, and the Pope was kicked out of the Vatican. It was a a brutal scene in every way. But it's also pretty clear that the Vatican was intensely corrupt at that point. And I'm not excusing what happened to the Pope, but there's no doubt that he had brought a lot of this harm upon himself as well. And so Cather begins the novel. Now remember, she's not Catholic, but she begins the novel in a very strange but beautiful way. We're in the Vatican, and we're sitting with the Pope and his cardinals, and they are discussing the good things of life as they're overweight, they're drinking the finest wines, they're not really concerned with the things that they should be concerned with. They are thinking about the pleasures that their position has brought them and not of their duties. But they recognize that somewhere out in North America, they need another bishop. And they realize that they can't appoint someone like themselves. They need a hardy, real man to go out there. And so they pick someone from Ohio who's originally from French, Latour, Jean-Marie Latour. And this is the opening scene where we find him and we meet him. And I, I would ask, I realize I've thrown a lot at you, but if you could go back 40 minutes and think about that continuity and the way that we think of humanity, all of humanity being of a whole, and nature being not something that is opposed to us, but something that is meant to allow us to create and to give to God that he blesses. So nature not in opposition, but his ally. The first words, it's fantastic, he mutters, and he closes his eyes to rest them from the intrusive omnipresence of the triangle. When he opens his eyes again, his glance immediately falls upon one juniper, which differed in shape from all of the others. It was not a thick growing cone, but a naked, twisted trunk, perhaps ten feet high, and at the top it parted into two lateral flat-lying branches with a little crest of green in the center, just above the cleavage. Living vegetation could not present more faithfully the form of the crucifix. 
The traveler dismounted. He drew from his pocket a much-worn book, and bearing his head, he knelt at the foot of the cruciform tree, and under his buckskin riding coat, he wore a black vest and a cravat and the collar of a churchman. He was a young priest. He was at his devotions. He was one priest in a thousand. Anyone could tell at first glance. His bowed head was not that of an ordinary man. It was built for the seat of a fine intelligence. His brow was open. It was generous. It was reflective. And his features handsome and somewhat severe. There was a singular elegance about the hands below the fringe cuffs of that buckskin jacket. Everything showed him to be a man of gentle birth. He was brave. He was sensitive. He was courteous. And his manners, even when he was alone in the desert, were distinguished. Now, how many of us can say that about ourselves when we wake up in the morning? I mean, how many of us can say that about ourselves when we're with our spouse or our children or our students or our workers, our co-workers, our colleagues? Right? And yet here he is, the man in the desert, knows exactly who he is. He knows his purpose. And even in the desert of the Southwest, the environment is not just hostile, it is also revealing and beautiful. It is miraculous in its own way. But how often do we not see that? How often do we walk past the beauty? How often do we miss, even in the ugliest thing, something that is filled with God's grace? This is what Cather is asking us to recognize, that we do not miss those things, not only in our relationships with one another, but in our relationship to the earth itself, that we see the miracle of life, that we see this persistence, this emergence of something that is always true, even if it does not always exist. It is there. It is a part of creation itself. And then she concludes this paragraph. The priest had a kind of courtesy towards himself, and towards all of the beasts, and even towards the juniper tree, which he knelt, for he knew that in all things it was God whom he was addressing. Now, that's incredible. And here's Cather, single woman from Nebraska, who gets it. She under, excuse me, she understands the importance of this. She understands the sacramentality of nature. And so this whole story, Everything that we see in Death Comes for the Archbishop is all about bringing the whole Southwest into larger American Catholicism, into Catholicism as an Orthodox understanding. And the only way he can do it, as he recognizes it, is by meeting the people who live there already where they're at not forcing them to become something they're not, not making them into Europeans in his own image, but recognizing that even within the own native cultures, because those cultures too originally come from the grace of God, that there are things worthy of keeping, that there are things worthy of protecting, even in their false images of their false gods, there is still truth because they hankered, they longed for something higher than themselves. And that is what Latour gets. He's not trying to make them into his own image. He is trying to elevate the grace that is already within them and bring it forward so it becomes the predominant aspect of their culture and not the thing that we can all identify as an evil in and of itself. So I want to read one other passage here, and I don't want to end with this. I'll end with something else. But to come to a conclusion, I want to read a passage that she writes where we have Latour 
coming into a place that simply cannot be sanctified. She encounters a place that is too corrupt. He encounters a place that is too corrupt. And he recognizes that he goes into this sacred spot for the Pueblo Indians, that there has been too much evil that's been committed here. And I want to describe this scene for you and read it because I just think it's stunning. So we have Latour. There's Latour, the real man out in the desert. But now his guide, Jacinto, takes him into a secret cave in which he's violating everything Jacinto is. He's violating everything of his culture because even the Indians themselves in this region recognize the evil as what had been done in this culture and they're embarrassed about it at this point. So he's violating everything by bringing the priest in there. Father Latour lay his ear to the crack for a long while, but despite that, the cold simply arose. He told himself he must be listening to one of the oldest voices on earth. And what he heard was the sound of a great underground river flowing through a resounding cavern. The water was far, far below, perhaps as deep as the very foot of the mountains. It was a flood moving in utter blackness under ribs of antiluvian rock. It was not a rushing noise, but the noise of a great flood moving with power. It is terrible, he said at last as he rose, and Yacinto spat on the clay. He gouged at the seam and he said, yes, Padre, it is. Now what we find out is this is where the Indians used to throw their children in to sacrifice them to the gods. And that place, this crevice, this crack, what we're hearing below is probably not a river, but the sound of wailing and gnashing and teeth in hell. And this is the imagery that Cather gives us. It's not all good. We have to understand that there are places, there are things that are irredeemable, but they are not the norm. They are the exception. Yacinto is redeemable. That cave of sacrifice is not. It needs to be closed. It needs to be taken out. But that place is one of only many where things can be done well. Right? That place cannot, but others can. And here we see Latour recognizes that. So when Latour is brought back up out of the cave, he recognizes that he can never speak of this again, that he would get Yacinto in trouble. He promises this is a thing of the past. The Indians have to move forward from this point, and that is forgiven in all ways. But then, and this is how the novel essentially ends, Latour sees a spot, a beautiful spot, there in a rise where the stone is distinctive, And that is exactly the spot where the Cathedral of Santa Fe now resides. That was Latour who understood that. And if any of you have been to that cathedral, you know that it is not meant to dominate nature. It is meant to be one with the natural scape. It is not the church imposed upon the landscape, but the church actually in harmony with the landscape there, not only in the very rise of the land there, but also in the very colors and the way the light hits it. And it's still the same cathedral. This is the one you can visit today in Santa Fe. And that, again, this is what Catherine is trying to get at for all of us. We have to recognize this beauty. So I'm really glad this was not in the church. And I'll tell you why. If I had to had to have read that passage from Nietzsche 
And if I had had the tabernacle behind me, I don't think I could have done it. Uh, it would have been just too creepy. And I'm not sure what kind of nuclear reaction we might have had up there as I brought that out. But I also think it's really important for us to know thought that has led somewhere, even if we don't like it. Nietzsche is critically important. But notice what we see when we look at people like Dawson or Kirk or Willa Cather. They are not ignoring the evil. They are simply telling us, don't dwell only on that. There are so many good things in life. And I can say this as someone at 51 who's been a conservative all my life. I am very good at tearing things apart. Every conservative is. It's what conservatives do best. We can tear apart, but it's not enough. And this is where Kirk understood you can't just be conservative. It's not enough to critique the past. You must conserve something worth conserving. And the only thing worth conserving for each one of us is the image of God that he has graced on every one of us individually, uniquely, but which will last for eternity should all work well. So thank you.